Sometimes after a couple has been married for a while, uh, they may choose to renew their vows. We've had several friends who have done this, and it can be a very powerful thing because we all know if you are married, you know that the vows that we make on our wedding day there at the altar, those vows, to some degree at least, are bound to be broken. They're very aspirational. We know they're good and right. It's what we desire to be. But y'all, when we stand and promise that I'm going to serve you and honor you in all circumstances, all the time, forever, come on. (laughs) We're sinners. And so we do better in some ways, and on some days we do better than others, right? But overall, nobody ever serves and loves and honors their spouse with all the urgency and joy and completeness of heart that we ought to all the time. No, we struggle to keep our vows. And then, of course, as we go along through life, we encounter all sorts of struggles and griefs as a married couple. And so sometimes a husband and a wife will decide to renew their vows. We're going to stand eye to eye and reestablish ourselves in these wonderful covenant promises that we made together once upon a time. We're going to walk back through these things again. It can be a wonderful thing. Well, as we are in Exodus 34 today, we get a sense of this, something kind of like this. As the Lord and His people relate to one another, God and Israel, there's a renewal of vows that's going to take place here in Exodus 34. And and there's a build-up to this that makes it necessary. See, if, if we follow the great narrative of Exodus... God's people, Israel, were enslaved to Egypt. Everything was looking dark and hopeless, but God heard their cry and came down to rescue them. And the Lord, having rescued Israel from slavery, beginning in chapter 19, He uh, establishes a covenant with them. On the basis of God's grace in saving them, the Lord says, I shall be your God and you shall be my, my people, if indeed you keep my covenant and obey my voice then you will experience all the good blessings of this relationship. And it's clear as God deals with Israel throughout Exodus, He's not not, uh, a, a judge speaking to someone on trial. He's not a master speaking to slaves. Uh, He is, in many ways, like a father to children, or even, as the Bible paints this picture at times, He's a husband to a bride. Often in the Scripture... There's this marriage language given to God and His people, how the Lord is pictured as a faithful husband and Israel as His uh, bride, adorned in purity, protected, provided for, loved and honored. See, this is the level of commitment that God has made. The level of nearness and trust and promise that come when people turn in trust to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. But then we saw, if you were with us, I think two weeks ago, we saw in chapter 32 how Israel commits spiritual adultery. They violate the covenant by crafting and worshiping a golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain communing with the Lord and receiving God's Word, the people are down on ground level just running rampant in their sin, doing whatever they want. And so Moses comes down with the the tablets of the commands in his hands, and then he sees what Israel has become, and he shatters them on the ground, and the people face a divine judgment. Now, it would seem at that point in the narrative that all has been lost. The covenant was made and ratified. The people were all in with God, it seemed, until they weren't. And now, all seems to be in disarray. 
But if you were with us last week, we saw in chapter 33, Moses intercedes for the people. And because he is pleasing to God, the Lord has mercy on them. He asks the Lord to restore to them his holy presence, and God answers, yes. Not because the people were worthy, but because God is merciful. Israel broke their end of the covenant, but the Lord will remain faithful to them. Nonetheless, he will not reject them or abandon them. Instead, he renews his vow and calls them to renew theirs. That's what chapter 34 is about. All of this begins to take shape. And it begins first, we're going to see this, with the restoring of the Ten Commandments. The first thing God commands. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and he rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. Now, the symbolism uh, shouldn't be lost on us that when Moses came down the first time with the first set of the stone tablets and shattered them on the ground in light of Israel's sin, that was symbolic. Israel had broken God's law. Well, here now, God doesn't say, well, they tried their best, let's try something else. No, the Lord says, let's reestablish. These commands will be replaced just as they were before, and the Lord himself says he'll write the commandments on them. So God is restoring the law, and for me at least, there's a clear message that's being presented here. Y'all, in his mercy, God covered Israel's sin, but he did not excuse it. In his mercy, he forgave them, but he doesn't excuse their sin. As if God's holiness somehow has taken a hit, or God has you know, a special compassion on these poor people, they couldn't keep that law anyway, so let's just lower the bar for them. The Lord will not do that. His holiness is never diminished. He's every bit as holy now as he was then, or ever was. And nor has the purpose of God's covenant changed. He hasn't changed his desire and expectation for them. His, his goal, remember, all throughout Exodus is that he's going to make Israel a holy people who will reflect God's glory and his grace to the whole world. And so God says, let's restore what was shattered, what was broken. The law will remain because God's holiness remains and the covenant hasn't been diminished or minimized. And so that really sets the stage, though, for what's next. Because if, I'm, you know, if we put ourselves in Israel's sandals here for a moment, there might be a great amount of fear or even cynicism to say we couldn't keep the, the law the first time, not even for a few weeks. So what are we going to do now? Is there any way for us to actually commune with the Lord in light of what we are and the fact that His holiness is what it is? And that's what comes next, is, a, is a, a way of understanding God and His relationship to us. It's really, y'all, this is one of the most important scriptures in the whole Bible. I say that every week, right? I know. But it really is, okay? Um, recall, if you, again, if you were with us last week, if you've ever read chapter 33, Moses makes a request of God that's really, you know, it would seem almost out of bounds. Moses says to the Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. 
I want to see all of you, Lord, for all that you are. And the Lord answers and says, my face you cannot see. Because no one can take in the fullness of God's glory and live. But the Lord does promise to make his goodness pass before Moses. And that he will proclaim his name to Moses. And here in verse 5, we see that promise now fulfilled. Look with me at Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, what makes this scripture right here so important? This is God's own revelation of himself. This is God's answer to Moses. When Moses says, God, I pray that I can see your glory, show me your glory, this is how God answers that question, in a way that Moses can take in and comprehend and carry with him. Remember what the Lord promised. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord to you. And so this is it. God's glory, God's goodness, His name, which means His character, His very nature, what we're witnessing here from God's own mouth, this is who He really is in his most essential and and, uh, specific, tangible reality, God is going to reveal himself in this way. And specifically, he's revealing himself as a a covenant maker, as a, a God who desires relationship. All of these terms are very relational. You see that? So when God says in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, he's introducing himself, not because Moses didn't know who he was, but to reinforce who He is to them. This is God's special covenant name, the unique name He gave to Moses in Exodus. Yahweh, Yahweh, He says. The name God reserves for the children of Israel to know Him by. And so when the Lord says, Yahweh, Yahweh, we know that whatever is going to come next here is going to be of ultimate importance. How is God going to define Himself to us? in all His glory and goodness. Now, if we take a step back here, I don't know how you might fill in the blanks on this. There are a lot of things that are true about God. We have a great number of attributes that we affirm about God, His nature, His character, His being. And so God, when when the Lord meets with Moses here on the mountain, He certainly could have said, the Lord, the Lord, sovereign and holy, or righteous and just, or perfect and and glorious. He could have said, the Lord, the Lord, all-knowing and all-wise. And certainly everything I just said is true. It's wonderfully true. But notice the focus of God here as He communicates His attributes to His people. What does He say? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God did not give Moses simply the checklist of all the appropriate divine attributes. The Lord right here is expressing his very heart, and especially his heart toward his people. And y'all, this, if, if we take this to our own hearts, this could be life-changing for us. And so I want to ask you a question to help fill in some of the gaps perhaps for us. And this is a rhetorical question. You just answer this for yourself. What is God's natural disposition toward you? How does God really feel about you? I know this to be true because it's true of me at times. There are some of us who believe that because I am a sinner, God is fundamentally against me. He's always put out with me. At best, He tolerates me, but nothing more. Because in my sin, that's all I deserve. That's better than I deserve. If God would simply let me in the doggy door in the back, then I should be, I should be satisfied with that because that's already more than what I deserve. So yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. God is merciful. God forgives me, I know, but it's almost like a, you know, like a, a pressure release valve, His mercy. He gives me just enough mercy to keep things from boiling over and exploding but otherwise he just holds his nose in my presence. Now, if that resonates with you at all, I want to appeal to us that we would let God speak from his own mouth in our hearing this morning. What is God's most natural disposition for his people? Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness, that is faithful love and truth. And y'all, these are not special graces that God gives to us as kind of a last resort just to keep things from boiling over. You know, He sprinkles a little grace to bring us back to center. No, this is who He most naturally and essentially is to us. This is first and foremost. If you are His, then this is who He is to you. As, as what is most essential and most central. Y'all, this is also why when Jesus came in the flesh, God's own Son who came to reveal God to the world, John tells us that Jesus came to us, John 1, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's exactly what we just read. Full of loving kindness and truth, compassionate and gracious. Jesus is the exact representation to the world of the God that we're reading about centuries earlier from Exodus 34. And what's more, the Lord says that He keeps this loving kindness to thousands. And y'all, our, our translations are wonderful, but there are times where it's not exactly the idea, and it helps us to, to dig a little deeper the, the Really, the better translation here is to thousands of generations. Not just to a certain number of people, but to, uh, to, to a thousand generations. That is to say that God's faithful love extends beyond all our ability to count or calculate. All limitation we might put around it, God breaks through. That's how great He is 
to us. And because he's gracious and loving, of course, the Lord says at last, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Whatever we do, the full scale and the full spectrum of sin, God is able to forgive because that's who he is. And so when we say, when the Bible says, that the Lord is a faithful husband to his people, that's not just nice spiritual imagery. That's his very heart on display. God keeps his covenant not like we would keep a business contract. He keeps his covenant from his very heart. He really does love us. And y'all, I hope this is not lost on you if you're familiar with the language of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is pictured as the bridegroom and his church, the bride. That same language is picked back up. Sometimes men especially, we struggle with that language. It's uncomfortable for us. And I pray by God's grace that we become comfortable with it because of all that it entails. The Word says that Jesus as the bridegroom adorns His bride in purity and washes us clean that we might be presented to Him blameless without spot or wrinkle. That's what it is to be forgiven of sin. That's how much He loves us. Now, this does not exclude righteous judgment or holiness or justice. If we think that God is so compassionate and gracious that somehow sin doesn't really matter, no. And that's made clear in the middle of verse 7. God's holiness is not nullified. Look again at the middle of verse 7. The Lord reminds Moses, yet He, the Lord, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, what does that mean? Um, Very simply, as simple as I can make it. To those who despise the Lord's mercy and grace and compassion, to those who will not repent of their sin, their guilt remains. In, In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul spells this principle out for us as to how God orchestrates things, how He made the world. And so Paul says in Galatians 6, no one mocks God. No one makes a fool out of God. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. To the one who sows to his own flesh, the one who continues in sin without repentance, he will from the flesh reap corruption. That is the principle that God has woven into the world. That's how it works. And so what this means, of course, is that those who will not repent, who will not receive God's grace, who despise His compassion, their sin does not occur in a personal vacuum. It always reaps or produces corruption. The guilty will not go unpunished. And what's more, and this is the part that may be confusing or even maddening, we say, wait a minute, God's going to visit their iniquity on the children and the grandchildren? And I think what that means is this. It doesn't mean that God holds my children personally responsible for my sin so much as it is the iniquity that is the deep and abiding nature of sin that is passed down in the form of corruption. And this is uncomfortable. This is something that ought to, if you're a parent or a grandparent, it ought to bring us to a point of reckoning. The corruption of sin never remains only in the individual sinner. 
it snowballs if we allow it. It trickles down. My sin will affect my children and grandchildren if left unrepented of. Your sin never remains only with you. That's something, of course, we tell ourselves to justify ourselves. Satan wants us to believe that, but it's just not true. The visiting of that iniquity will take its place in the generational outworking of sin. We've seen it. Some of us have lived it. But here we come back to center again. God's mercy is always presently available to those who would turn to Him. Whether in the present, the second, the third, the fourth generation, whatever it is, we're not destined to live out all of the consequences of these sins. They can always be redeemed and reversed in a moment for those who call upon the Lord and His mercy. No one is doomed to live out the iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. At any point, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us. But you notice this also. I think this is fascinating. I think I read this in a, in a book by Dane Ortland. This is not original to me. But do you notice the extent that God speaks of justice, judgment, and the extent of His loving kindness? The extent of iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. His loving kindness to the thousandth generation. Meaning, mercy always triumphs over judgment to those who turn to the Lord in faith, to those who repent of sin and receive His mercy, always. Mercy triumphs. Now, y'all, in all of this, I, I, I hope that there's something that we kind of take home together with us, that as the covenant is being renewed here in, in Genesis or, or Exodus 34, it's only because the Lord is gracious. I hope you notice this, that apart from the intercession of Moses... The people have done nothing to regain God's trust. They haven't compensated for their sin as if they could. In fact, no, the people continue to be sinful. God has said this over and over. Moses says it. The people are obstinate in their sins, meaning they are stiff of neck. And so God knows good and well that the people will not keep their end of the covenant. They can promise all day, but they will fail to obey Him. God knows that. And so what's He doing renewing something that He knows is going to be uh, fumbled and failed all over again? The point here is this, that God on His part is faithful and He always keeps His promises. This is God declaring who He is for our sake, not who we ought to be for His sake merely. We understand that, that Israel is expected to keep the law, but in, in light of their sin, who is God going to be? He is the compassionate and gracious God, and that will never change. This is more about Him than it is about us. And we now live in the light of this kind of loving kindness. And y'all, you know, we actually get to do one better than that. This is one of my favorite things as we've walked through Exodus, is continually taking what is in Exodus at face value, but then looking ahead at all that we now experience related to God's grace, we have the fuller measure now in Christ. And so let's do that one more time here this morning. Look down at Exodus 34, verse 29. There's such an interesting turn of events here. Verse 29, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with the Lord. 
So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. The last time Moses came down from the mountain, his face was not shining. It was contorted in fury as he shattered the commandments at the feet of Israel. Now he comes down the mountain, and his face is radiant. You know, we sing at Christmas time, radiant beams from thy holy face. We're talking about Jesus. That's not actually in the Bible. That's just kind of a fanciful way of, of thinking of, of Jesus, right? I think we actually get it from, from Moses. There were radiant beams shining from his face, so much so that the people didn't want to come close. The rubbing off of the glory of God on Moses' face, even though it's a lesser glory that's seen in Moses, it's too much for the people to handle. And so eventually Moses has to put a veil over his face to keep the people able to come near him and to, and to receive him, as it were, because the glory was too much even for them. Isn't that neat? Now, on the surface, that might just be only a neat detail. Just interesting, right? But it's more than that. And here's the connection I want us to see. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he picks this back up for us. And, I, and if, you, if you're quick, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 3 for a moment. Because what Paul is doing in this chapter, he's reflecting on the glory of God on Mount Sinai. The cloud and the flame that the people witnessed, the glory. And he reflects on the glowing face of Moses, what we just read, and the divine gift of the Ten Commandments. And Paul makes a contrast here between the Old Covenant, what we see in Exodus, and now the New Covenant, which has been brought about in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Old Covenant, Paul says, was written on tablets of stone, but the New Covenant is written with the Spirit of the living God on our hearts. The Old Covenant results in death because Israel failed to keep God's commandments. They would not keep their end of the covenant. But the New Covenant is entirely different. The new covenant results in life because we are born again by the Spirit of God as a gift given to those who receive Him by faith. And so here's what Paul says. Listen to the contrast here as he lays it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. What Paul is saying here, he's not saying that the Old Covenant was bad, not in any way. The glory of God was on clear display there. We've seen it all throughout Exodus, week by week, the glory of God clearly on display for the people. But we understand this, what Paul is trying to communicate here, the old covenant, the covenant ratified and given as law to the people, it was conditioned 
on Israel's faithfulness. Remember, the Lord said, I will be your God, you will be my people, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you will receive all the promised blessings. And of course, they didn't. If we'll keep reading, we'll see it. It's, it's, it's basically on every page. They didn't keep their end of the covenant, which is why Paul calls the, the old covenant the ministry of death and condemnation. Not because there was anything deficient in God. No, God was the faithful husband, but he wed himself to an unfaithful bride. God knew that would happen. And therefore, even when God gave the law in the first place, he never gave it to impart life and salvation. That was never the point. In fact, when we look to the law even now, the law's purpose now, as it was then, is that it might reveal our unrighteousness, that it might expose our sin and point us to redemption. And so this is what it means, both for Israel and now for us. Y'all, if, if, if our salvation should depend on our obedience, then it is a ministry of death to us. The only outcome is condemnation. I want to say that again because I think it's so central. If your salvation depends on your obedience, the only outcome is death because of sin. But now, Paul says, God has ushered in and brought about a new covenant, what he calls a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of righteousness, which contains a far surpassing and far lasting kind of glory. What's he talking about? This is the new covenant of our salvation, our redemption that is granted to us as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ, in the sending of His Son who loved us and gave Himself for us. And y'all, whereas the Old Covenant was conditional, God is faithful, but Israel must also be faithful. This New Covenant is unconditional, meaning it depends entirely on God and His work, His promise, and His grace. It is Jesus' righteousness which is now given to us, imputed to us. It is not a righteousness of our own that we must achieve. It's the Spirit of God who makes us alive to God, not anything that we do ourselves, not conditioned upon you and me and anything that we might bring to the table. It's entirely of God from start to finish. And that's why Paul is able to make such an obvious, massive contrast in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, if the old covenant came with astounding brightness and glory, how much more? How much more glory do we now receive and enjoy in light of Jesus Christ and all that He's done for us? You saw this a second ago. Moses, uh, Paul says Moses' face possessed a fading glory. Isn't that interesting? He was only a man. It was a glory rubbed off, in a sense, by association. And the law that Moses carried in his hand was always meant to be temporary. It had no power to save anyone. But now, in Christ, we receive a surpassing glory. Not a man with a glory rubbed off on him, but the very glory of God in himself as God's Son. An unfading glory because He is our Savior. 
And He has given eternal life to us. And that life is in Himself. How much more do we now receive and enjoy and experience than the people of Israel ever could? Than even Moses in all his radiance. He himself looked ahead as to what would come, the promise of God to be fulfilled. That is what we now live in. Y'all, I read the Old Testament at times and I think, man, how sweet would that have been to see it, to hear it? It would have been. But then I'm reminded, I hope, that what I have, what we enjoy, is better. Because Christ has come, Christ has died, and he has risen again. And now all who have faith in him possess the very Spirit of God, both now and forever. An unfading glory reserved in heaven for us. May we receive and enjoy the light, the radiance, not of Moses, but of the true Moses our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has interceded for us so that there might no longer be a ministry of death, but a ministry of righteousness and life forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is for us uh, this morning, I I hope and pray it's a very deep and yes, perhaps a life-changing reality now that as we understand, Lord, who you've always been, always, you've never changed, that, Lord, you are right now to us, if we belong to you by faith, then your disposition toward us is not one of judgment or anger, but of compassion and grace. Father, that you delight to draw near to us, and it has nothing to do with our worthiness, Lord. We're not worthy. It has everything to do with your unconditional love and promise. That you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sins in his body on the cross. To grant to us his righteousness, not anything of our own making or doing. To fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, to make your home with us forever. Father, I pray this morning that we would be just dumbfounded by how spoiled we are, by how much glory we now possess and enjoy, granted to us so freely and so wonderfully in Christ. Father, help us, I pray, to to see, to grasp, to take hold of this. Um, It may be hard for us to, to, to sense what all this really means for us, Lord, but certainly, I pray, we would recognize that because of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under condemnation. That because of Jesus Christ, Lord, we do not look in the mirror in hopes of being enough for you to accept us. Because of Jesus Christ, we are not seeking to simply be better people in this world but we are now saved, we are made alive, we are filled with the Spirit, Father. We are yours. And so, Father, you are uh, the faithful husband to to the pure and glorious bride because you've made us that way. And I ask, Lord, your mercy upon us 
as we seek now to live out the glorious new reality of the grace we've been given. Lord, we cannot do this, Father, out of our own adequacy or, or even our own initiative, Father. We must walk by the Spirit. And so we ask for that, Lord, a continual filling of, of your, your grace, your power, your goodness, your mercy, all that you are, Father, that it would be the, the new animating reality of life. Lord, from the inside out, Lord, we ask for your grace to fill us. And thank you, Lord, that you've held nothing back. You've given us your very self. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. Amen.